Coming up in this podcast, house prices, RCR sell-off, Xenia Svetnenko, Optus Stadium, Lithium Strategy, Big Miners Back Indigenous Campaign, The Simpsons, and our special report on big risks to WA. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast, and welcome Mark Beyer. Uh, Mark, a short week, uh, but one with plenty of activity as the business year gets off to its unofficial post-Australia Day start. Uh, now, firstly, let's turn to something that's uh, dear to many of us, house prices. I gather the news remains gloomy. So another month and another set of data from CoreLogic showing that across the country, uh, things are not good if you're a property owner looking for uh, capital growth. Uh, every capital city apart from Canberra, recorded a fall in house values uh, during the month of January. Um, The biggest falls were Sydney and Melbourne. They, of course, had a a big boom, um, but they've come off in a big way in the past year. Um, Sydney prices are down nearly 10%. Mm. Melbourne prices down about 8%. Perth, um, prices fell again by 1.1% in January, down about 5% for the year. So a continuation of uh, this very soft residential property market. Um, One interesting little twist. uh, In Sydney and Melbourne, the the big gains were at the top end of the market. And so that's where prices have really been smashed um, at that top quartile. Um, Perth, over the past year, has actually been the reverse of that. So the the top 25% of the market has actually had... um, Still down, but a lot less than the wheat, than the, the cheaper properties. Mm, okay. So um, you know, a bit of an interesting change there. Also, a breakdown of regional values. Um, regional WA has actually performed a bit worse than metropolitan Perth. So look, not a very bright start to our discussion, but look, that's the um, the reality of the residential property market. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And obviously, uh, you know, I guess the, the, the turn in the local house prices is what we're all looking for because that'll, that'll signal something about the local economy. Um, but I guess that really gloomy stuff from over east is kind of a national sentiment is going to be a bit of a drag on, on, uh, on WA to an extent as well. So, yeah, watch with interest. Um, now, Mark, uh, last year we saw the collapse of RCR Tomlinson. Uh, engineering firm. This week, uh, the administrators have sold off two chunks of that business. Yeah, and look, um, you know, opportunity has come out of that adversity. Um, NRW, uh, they're a big contracting business here in the West, um, got a, a very large presence in the mining industry and do a bit of infrastructure work. So they've bought RCR's mining technologies business. This is really good news for WA. I mean, this is part of the the original part of the old RCR Tomlinson business, which you know, ran for more than 100 years. Um, operations down at Bunbury and Welshpool, about 300 jobs in WA. So this is sort of the, the core part of, of RCR Tomlinson in WA. Mm-hmm. So very pleasing that it's found a new owner. Um, and interesting numbers. I mean, they only paid $10 million for this business, um, had annual revenue of about over $110 million, um, a track record of profit. Um, 300 staff. So, you know, there's a real opportunity there for NRW. They might have picked up a bargain here. Um, I guess we'll find out more in time. And the other part of it, 
Um, there's a, a family business up in Wangara that most people will not have heard of, Unique Metalworks. Uh, now, they're specialists in laser cutting of uh, sheet metal, and RCR also had a laser cutting business. I mean, 200 people, very mm. substantial business. All so, here in WA? No, that's national. <coughs> so um, Paul Figliamini, he runs Unique Metalworks. So he's on, on the numbers we've got, he's just about doubled the size of his business. Uh, by picking up this part of RCR. The, the cost of that acquisition was not disclosed. Um, but look, um, you know, two very substantial parts of the old RCR um, in new hands and jobs secured. So that's nice. But still some very large parts of that business trying to find a new owner. Mark, uh, Zenia Svetnenko has been in the news again, having uh, bail refused in the Perth Magistrates Court as he fights extradition proceedings by the US government. Now, what do we know and uh, what can we say? So Zenia was a real high flyer, um, a young man who achieved a lot of success. Um, his little niche was using um, messaging services um, and finding commercial applications for that. So someone who was tech savvy, but also very commercially savvy. And look, he made a lot of money, won accolades, um, won numerous awards, including our own 40 Under 40 awards back in 2011. But yeah, look, things turned bad for him in 2016 when the US authorities came out and charged him along with about 10 other people on fraud charges. Essentially, they were signing up people uh, without their knowledge for these monthly services and they were getting horoscopes and celebrity gossip and other bits of trivia coming through on a messaging service and getting hit with $10 US per month. Um, and apparently we're making millions of dollars out of this. Now he was arrested just before Christmas. Um, he's currently in Hakia prison, uh, applied for bail, but that was refused by the magistrate. Um, and he's got a few months um, cooling his heels in Hakia prison while there'll be an extradition hearing in April. Um, but not looking good. Uh, some of the other people involved in this have either pleaded guilty or been convicted already. Um, so, you know, part of a, a large group. Um, so, you know, a, a rise and fall of someone who, uh, you know, shone brightly for a while um, but has a, a grim future. Yeah, well, and of course, assuming that uh, the allegations are true. Um, well, interesting. Grim, grim in terms of fighting the yeah, charges yeah. for a long time, even if he's not convicted. Yeah, fair point. Um, and yeah, he was a real high flyer, wasn't he? And I, you kind of wonder, I, I've wondered a few things about this. First of all, whatever he's been accused of in the US, he was pretty much applying here. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, but much, much earlier. And I kind of wonder if, uh, if he wasn't, uh, you know, if the laws are different, that whatever he did here was, uh, you know, he's not been charged with anything in Australia to what I'm aware of. Um, the other thing is, and this is, we were, I was talking about this uh, whilst I was out at uh, dinner last night actually about, you know, you mentioned there it was like a, a certain amount per month and it was quite a sizable number I think that for, per, for people in their mobile phone account, that's kind of a number that you go, oh, what's that? You can't help wondering if he'd been sort a little bit less if this had it might have gone unnoticed forever you know just a little tiny thing and I guess the the third thing I think about is he was very flamboyant he was in the party scene and it was all this you know he brought attention to himself and I can't help wondering if that isn't another 
way that you know he was on the rich list and all sorts of stuff as well and I can't help if that doesn't also have a you know an effect in terms of when the authorities decide oh to chase someone oh well they're he's over in Australia but he looks like he's got lots of money and we've noticed it so certainly drew attention to himself yeah so you kind of think about now I'm not suggesting that you know (laughs) for people who want to game the system I'm not trying to give them the way not to get caught but uh, I just can't help wondering that um now, Mark, uh, when Optus Stadium opened a year ago, there was much conjecture about the costs and benefits. Now, we know the costs, but uh, we were also starting to see some benefits. Yeah, look, so there was a, a, an occasion um, early in the week to mark that one-year anniversary. And, I mean, look, to me, it's a bit of a mixed story. Um, there, there are some headline numbers that are very impressive. Um, the stadium has attracted what do they say, 2 million fans over the course of a year, had 43 major events, um, along with lots of smaller events. Government said it's attracted 120,000 visitors from outside of Perth. So at that level, um, it's quite a positive story. There's also some big events coming up in the coming year. Um, There's the State of Origin Rugby League, which is often a big crowd puller. Uh, the Bledisloe Cup and Manchester United soccer team are coming to Perth. Mm. Um, the sort of events that uh, governments hand over fairly sizeable checks for to attract those sorts of teams to come to Perth and all the fans that follow them. But yeah, you know, this is a really competitive space and I think that was highlighted by the other thing that came out during the week, the fixtures for the 2020 Cricket World Cup, which is happening next year. Now, Perth is hosting a bunch of games for this World Cup, but we've missed out on all the big games. Um, They're being held in Sydney and Adelaide and Melbourne. So we pat ourselves on the back and say we've got Australia's best stadium. And the minister, Paul Papalia, comes out and says Perth is going to take the sporting capital crown off of Melbourne. Um, And yet for something like this, you know, we haven't competed very well. Yeah. So it's you know it's a really tough space. You know we, and and this is I think reflected across the tourism market more generally. You know as we've discussed previously, WA is underperforming when it comes to attracting tourists. So while we're doing some things and while we are promoting the state and while we are attracting some big events, you know we just got to keep on running faster and harder to compete. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess we don't know the details around the cricket as to whether those states, you know, pay anything to Cricket Australia or whatever to get to get those finals there. I don't know if there's incentives or not. But, uh, you know, it's a tough game. And, uh, and, and if you've got a government that doesn't have a lot of money, it's a challenging position to be in, just as with competing for tourists in general. Um, now, Mark, uh, lithium's a major opportunity in, for WA. We've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast. Um, the uh, government launched uh, a new strategy for this mineral. What can we expect? I found this interesting for what it says about um, the way government approaches strategy. Uh, the minister um, and, and the premier announced this lithium strategy. And yet when you dig into it, there's actually not a lot there. It's a nice sort of glossy sort of document and uh, some nice words around it. But to give some insight, the first thing they're planning to do under this strategy is develop a strategy 
for investment attraction. Mm. So I'm asked myself, oh, well, what have you actually done so far? And, you know, and not a great deal. Uh, other things they've talked about, well, we're going to um, address skill shortages. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's a core part of government. Um, they're going to look at access to infrastructure. Well, that's a core part of government. Um, so in a sense, um, you know, there's, there's a temptation where governments feel as though they need to try and do well, almost too much sometimes, um, when in fact, if they just sort of focus on you know, their, their core role and, and do their best to ensure that Western Australia is an attractive jurisdiction uh, for investment and that we do develop the skills and the infrastructure, then everything else should flow off the back of that. You know, another example that springs to mind, there was a launch uh, last year of a strategy for attracting international students to Western Australia. Same thing, glossy brochure, but it was just a starting point. Mm. You know, there wasn't a lot in there. Now, as I say, doesn't mean government, you know, don't try too hard to sort of find an answer for everything, but just sort of do your core job properly and then things might flow off the back of that. Yeah. So a little bit of frustration when I see these big launches and not much behind it. Yeah, and I guess that's the worrying thing I often look at is go is thinking, well, if... And I don't mind the fact that a strategy can be a thin thing. In a sense, it can be a, here's our strategy. But if the part of that strategy is then to go, well, we need to then go and develop a strategy in some other area or some element of that, you think, well, okay, that's a delaying thing. could be six or eight months away or... And when you're halfway through their term, as I think they are, right, then, you know, we get to the pointy end of maybe that we get to an election and nothing's really happened yet. It's always a bit of a worry. But, look, you know, at least they're focused on it. And uh, sometimes the government just signalling that it's keen on something does have an impact on foreign investors and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's positives in it. Just like to see a bit more action too. Um... Now, Mark, uh, BHP and Rio have thrown their weight behind the Uluru Statement's push for constitutional recognition for Indigenous people. Um, now, what can we say about this? Yeah, look, I went to a breakfast during the week <coughs> where um, Andrew McKenzie, Chief Executive of BHP, spoke. Um, it was quite an impassioned um, speech from Andrew McKenzie. And so the Uluru Statement came out uh, a year and a half ago and its core um, sort of recommendation was for uh, a, a voice for Indigenous people. Now, exactly what form that will take is unclear, uh, but it's some sort of body where Indigenous people will have a say about legislation and policy and such, and they want this constitutionally enshrined. Now, so it's a fairly significant... It is, yes. You know, Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister when it came out and he dismissed the idea fairly quickly. Uh, but the, the, the big end of town, led by the Business Council of Australia, have been advocating this change. And so that campaign has really stepped up significantly when you get the Chief Executive of BHP coming out publicly and saying this is what we should do. And then Rio Tinto um, endorsed what he was saying. Um, now, it sort of throws up a lot of questions. You know, one is around the role of business. So yeah. clearly they are intervening here in a political debate and, you know, has overtones of uh, the, the debate over same-sex marriage. 
where some prominent chief executives intervened in that one. Um, I guess at its core, you know, the, the, the best you can say, BHP and Rio, big operations in outback Australia, particularly in the Pilbara, they interact with Indigenous people probably more than any other business, yep. um, employ a lot of Indigenous people um, and have a history of um, making agreements with Indigenous groups as you know, a core part of pursuing their business. Yep. Um, and you know, Andrew McKenzie certainly sees this as a next step in, um, I guess, you know, building relations with and helping Indigenous people um, improve themselves. Um, you know, the contrary view is that it's um, it's, it's just a, a symbolic gesture, um, and that you know there should be more focus on tangible, on the ground things uh, to address you know the very clear issues around unemployment and, and poverty and poor health outcomes that yeah, right. still blight many Aboriginal people around the country. Which is that Australia Day debate that's been going on, you know, about whether you know the complaints about the celebrating Australia Day on the on on the the day that the first fleet arrived is you know protesting that versus actually the real problems that indigenous people have so I get, I get that yeah it's interesting i mean you know and, and i and i you know i kind of buy into the argument that corporate australia shouldn't really be in, involved in politics but on the flip side they're already involved in politics and they're constantly the whipping boys for political activists of all types, you know, be it on tax issues or on climate change issues or, you know, gender employment, gender balance and gender income and all that kind of thing. So I guess in some ways, you know, these are these are not the personal decisions of the leaders of those businesses. These are business decisions based on, well, if we position ourselves here, we're kind of, you know, kind of pot- potentially uh, winning some friends on one side and kind of defending ourselves from some others on another side. So, you know, but I know it's, it, it always feels a bit irky when someone who's, you know, ivory tower-ish in those big companies uh, starts telling the rest of the country what we should or shouldn't do. But I also understand that they get they cop it if they don't say things too. Um, now, Mark, uh, a little bit, you know, on the well, curious side here, the Perth Mint has been a little less traditional with its latest coin offering. I was really intrigued on a, on a much lighter note. Uh, the Simpsons will feature on the latest collection of uh, collectible coins mm-hmm. produced by the Perth Mint. Mm. So that uh, got us all talking in the office when we saw this announcement come through. Um, so look, you know, the Perth Mint, it, it's a big business. Uh, they do all the gold refining and they've got a, a very substantial business of uh, producing collectible coins. Um, Far be it for me to sort of know what a coin collector is looking for, but I never would have thought The Simpsons was uh, top of the list, but I may well be proven wrong. So there's the World Money Fair currently being held in Berlin, and that's where the Perth Mint has launched these coins. So if you want to buy a silver coin with a picture of The Simpsons, uh, only $230, (laughs) if you think that's a good investment. Um, is it the whole family on there? Or? Well, one of them has the whole family. And of course, and if you flip over the coin, um, some people might turn in their grave, but there's Queen Elizabeth on the other side of the coin. <laughs> right. So there's the, the traditionalists and then the, uh, the Simpsons fans. 
Um, there's another one with a uh, half-eaten donut, you know, Homer's favourite food. Um, so there, there are several different ones there. Um, but, yeah, look, I think, um, as, I mean, look, as they say, um, they're bringing a bit of a fun twist to coin collections. And, you know, people have made a lot of money from collectibles, yeah, uh, yeah. whether it be cars or art, and uh, maybe Simpsons coins will be the uh, next thing that, that gets added to the uh, the list of lucrative investments. And Mark, I, I, look, you may not have any information on this, but does what is actually on the coin make really any difference to the price or the future value, or is it really the coin's value is just the value of the the, the metal that's in it? Well, I would have thought fundamentally it's the metal that's mm. in it. Um, but but I imagine in this case they're thinking you know if there's something a little bit different a bit quirky that's going to add to the appeal interesting well (laughs) they've got the marketing experts and they've done it for a long time so good luck to them now Mark our special report this week is by Matt McKenzie it's on the big risks facing WA yeah so look if um, listeners out there want to get a handle on what are the things I need to be looking out for over the coming year or more? Uh, this feature is a great read. So look, probably top of the list is China. Uh, both the, the trade war with the US and uh, questions about the, uh, the strength of growth in China. Um, obviously core to this state with iron ore exports and, uh, and coal exports from the rest of the country going into China. Um, and you know, a big driver of global growth. Um, now, you know, growth in China tapered off, it was about 6.6% last year. Mm. Now, that would be a sensational number for Australia or any sort of, um, you know, most of the, the OECD countries. Um, whereas for China, though, it's a bit soft and it'll taper off a bit more next year. Um, it's also a country with very high debt. You know, a lot of questions still get raised about the banking system there and uh, the financial strength of it and so on. Um, and then, of course, you know, the trade war with uh, the US administration. So, yeah, which yeah. has escalated quite significantly this last week or so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Over this issue with Huawei and, uh, and, and you know, the, the US government accusing it of all sorts of things. That's right. Um, so, look, big issues there. Um, you know, monetary policy and interest rates, um, you know, that's a big factor that's going to can have a, an impact on, on the economic outlook. Um, from a local perspective, uh, we're seeing a big or a very substantial pickup in investment in mining and energy projects, and that's raised some concern around the availability of skilled labour mm-hmm. um, and experienced skilled labour. You know, we're hearing lots of anecdotal evidence of concern along that front. Um, and we've got the 457 visa regimes completely changed since the last yes. time that, that that was a problem. So much harder to bring in people from overseas, plus the infrastructure boom on the East Coast means that people are much less likely to come into the West from the East Coast. Um, and in fact, another report we've got in this edition is around the continued decline in apprenticeships and traineeships. Yeah, right. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? We so just can't get, can't get a smooth run in this, can we? Absolutely not, no. Um, and, you know, there's a report from the Skills Training Board uh, chaired by Jim Walker, who used to run West Track. So, you know, they were a big employer of apprentices. Um, and, you know, it, it's amazing. This area gets discussed and reviewed, you know, you know, it's a perennial topic, and yet he's still raising concerns about the system is very complicated. 
Mm. You know, businesses don't know their way through the training system. Um, it's hard to navigate. Um, it's expensive to employ apprentices. Well, I'm sure I read reports 20 years ago that said that. Yep. And here we are, going around and around. Groundhog Day. Frustrating. <laughs> uh, and then the other one is around, um, you know, house prices. That's obviously a risk for um, for Australia. And as we've already discussed, you know, heading down. Um, and then tied in with that is how the banks respond. They've already tightened up their lending. Part of it driven by the regulators. And then, of course, on Monday, we've got the uh, Hain Royal Commission handing down its reporting to the banking system. Yeah, right. So potential for more regulatory changes there. And there's already impact, right, or, or on house prices or housing loans from what we can hear through that. So, you know, that's got an impact as well, hasn't it? And then we've got a federal election coming up probably around May. Yeah, right. Um, you know, the polls are telling us there's a very good chance of a change of government, uh, prospect of Bill Shorten becoming PM. He's announced some very significant tax reforms um, around negative gearing, capital gains tax, dividend imputation. So that will affect many people. Um, so Matt McKenzie's done a, a real in-depth analysis of these things. Um, but yeah, lots of things for people to watch out for. Yeah, yeah, and no, I got it. And uh, I guess that's what you've got to be careful of is that you know people then stop and don't want to do something. And federal elections have that effect. Banking has that effect. And, you know, people, global trouble has that effect. So, yeah, they are risks. They're big risks, aren't they? Unless you're in the gold mining game, generally, <laughs> well, generally that's a, <laughs> those are not risks. They're rewards, aren't they? Well, in fact, you know, let's, let's go a little bit positive to finish off. The Aussie yeah. dollar gold price is spectacular. It's had a really strong run-up. Yeah. Um, the iron ore price has also had a good run-up in the last week or two. And, and if you don't mind me butting in there, Mark, it's funny, though, you can write about all these risks and then along comes some single disaster in Brazil and the iron ore price goes up 11%, you know, in a matter of days or whatever. I mean, that's... it. You can't... You, can't, you don't always know what's going to happen, do you? No, no. So still lots of opportunities out there. Yeah. And, and I do say as well... You know, people always want political certainty, understandably, and yet we've had a decade or more of, of political upheaval in this country. Mm. You know, probably ever since John Howard lost office, it's it's been a very volatile situation. Yep. And if you let that stop you running your business, well, you wouldn't do anything. In a sense, it's the new normal. Yep. And we've got to sort of learn to manage with that uncertainty. No, I agree with you. Well, thank you, Mark. Look forward to reading all that. Um, the inaugural Property Industry Briefing invites some of Perth's biggest property players to discuss past, present and future industry trends and insights into where the best property investments are around Perth and across WA. Facilitated by Business News' very own Associate Editor and property journalist Dan Wilkie, join peers and colleagues to network and gain valuable insight into WA's dominating and unique property market. The event is to be held on Tuesday, February 19 at 5pm at Central Park and tickets are available on our website. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts and to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud. <laughs>